We thank you, Lord, that no enemy can stand against you. We're grateful that the battles that we find ourselves in, we can come to you for refuge and for strength. And the battle then becomes yours. We're grateful for your power and your might. We stand in awe of your holiness. And we ascribe with even the cherub this morning who are shouting to the tops of their lungs, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, for the whole earth is full of your glory. That statement from Scripture becomes a refuge, a foundation upon which we can stand when we find ourselves in the midst of a battle. Some of our battles are our own fault, our our own making, and we confess them to you this morning. Some of the battles we have rage on the horizon of circumstances of this world. Those things that we don't have any control over, but yet they're there, and that's when we know the battle belongs to the Lord. I thank you, Lord, that our strength and our righteousness does not come from the halls of Washington, D.C., but they flow down from the very throne room of our God, like a mighty rushing river that never ends, deeper than any ocean can be fathomed is your grace and mercy. It is by you and through you alone that we have our being. It is for you and you alone that we must live. We remember the words of recorded for us from the pages of, of Haggai when he when he says that no matter what I will serve the Lord. Whether the fields would bear no fruit, whether the trees would be barren, whether oxen or sheep would even produce, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. We're grateful, Father, for what you are doing in the lives of individuals that are friends of ours. Individuals of our church family that, that can't be here because of sickness, because of situations of life. They find themselves in a battle. But the battle belongs to you.
and bring about a healing as only you can. Thank you for those who are ministering to Jenny and and thank you for those who are ministering to our other loved ones. But there's nothing like you, Lord, ministering in the midst of these storms. It's a kind of storm that allows us the privilege to see you calm the sea and bring the wind to stop blowing. It's a kind of storm that allows us the privilege to hear your voice as you utter the words, peace, and be still. There can be no greater thing than than that, O Lord, to even usher in this morning as we come together. Privilege to worship you. It's more than just singing songs. It's more than just passing a plate. It's a determination to hear from you and then to honor you with our lives. As we come to your word, Lord, it's, we're reminded that we are to pray for those who are in authority over us. We lift up to you our president and his cabinet, our senators, our congressmen, all those that are to be under your care, under your guidance. Lord, I ask that you would minister to them today. There seems to be turmoil in the midst of individuals who are supposed to guide us in such a way that we're at peace, but there seems to be turmoil. I pray, God, that your Spirit would intercede today that we would be a nation that would be focused upon doing that which is right, guided by your word, directed by the Constitution that has been drawn up by individuals that have fear of the Lord. I pray for our local officials, our governor and his cabinet, our representatives, Lord, that serve us in this state. I ask, Lord, that you would intervene in their decisions, cause individuals both nationally and locally, those who know you as Savior, give them a voice, a voice of reason in the midst of a shallow and at times wandering nation. I pray for our servicemen and ladies as they are serving you for our protection. Wherever they are, Lord, I pray your hand of protection and blessing upon them. 
Thank you for their willingness to be used of you as instruments of protection. Over all, Lord, our true protection comes from you. So, Lord God, thank you for this morning. As we come to your word, make it alive today to us. That which we have not seen, I pray that you would open our eyes. That which we have not heard, may we listen today. That which we lack, I pray, Lord, that you would provide. And that which we need, thank you, Father, that it will be that which will sustain us as we walk this earth. So to you be the honor and the glory and the power and the might and the dominion of all that there is. And we will praise you and thank you in the matchless name of Christ our Savior. Amen. Chapter 2 of the book of Ezra ends with an interesting statement. It ends by saying all Israel went to their cities. After a four-month journey from Babylon to the land of Judah, the individuals, the, those who were stirred in their hearts to leave captivity and, and come to a land that was once theirs, free, and the ability to reestablish, if you will, their families, to reestablish their livelihood, it says that they went back to their own cities. We don't know how long they were there from the end of chapter one or chapter two to beginning of chapter three, but in chapter three, it begins with another interesting statement for it says, in the seventh month, in the seventh month, something happened. We don't know exactly how long the Israelites were in their city, but I can probably tell you what they found. They found their, their cities of ancestry laid waste. There were no more crops there. Everything had stopped growing. When a nation took over another nation, when Babylon came and ravaged the land of Judah, they made it in such a way that nothing could grow in the land. They used salt in the dirt. They wanted to keep the people in a reverence, if you will, of fear and also poverty in order to control them. And so when these individuals that heeded the stirring of God in their heart, they left Babylon, they came home, they found their homes and their lands laid waste. And they also found individuals there who originally were part of the nation of Israel. They were not taken in captivity. 
if you remember, some of the, the poorer people, some of the invalid people were left there. Nebuchadnezzar didn't really care about them. They were not of fear for him, and so they were left there. And over a period of 70 years, these Israelites came back to a land that, quite frankly, was probably foreign to them. We don't know how long they were in their cities, but in the seventh month, something happened. Things began to change. It gives us the question, and the question goes something like this. When circumstances of life come and assail you, to whom is it that you go? To what is it that you listen to? To where is it that you find yourself? Chapter 3, and verses 1 down through verse 7, gives us a good clue as to what we should do. Let's begin there by looking at, first of all, notice, if you will, the beginnings of restoration in verses 1 and 2. Let me read for you the first seven verses of chapter 3. Please follow along as we read. And when the seventh month had come, and the children of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. Then Jeshua, the son of Josadak, and his brethren, the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and his brethren, arose and built the altar of God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Though fear had come upon them because of the people of those countries, they set the altar on its bases, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and evening burnt offerings. They also kept the Feast of Tabernacles, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings in the number required by the ordinance of each day. Afterwards, they offered the regular burnt offerings and those of, for the new moon and for all the appointed feasts of the Lord that were consecrated. And those of everyone who willingly offered a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, although the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not been laid. They also gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food, drink, and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre to bring cedar logs from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa, according to the permission which they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Notice the beginnings of the restorations began in the seventh month. 
Don't miss that detail. The seventh month would have been considered, and I believe still is considered, to be one of the most important months of the Israeli calendar. For it is in the seventh month that it is to begin, if you will, by a blast of trumpets to announce a day of rest. In other words, the first day of the seventh month, it coincides with our month of October. So we can envision the first of October, you're out in the middle of the field, all of a sudden you hear trumpets blow. What you're supposed to do is stop what you're doing. You are to cease. It is to be a day consecrated to the Lord for rest. Nine days later, or on the tenth day, there is to be the Day of Atonement, as described in Leviticus chapter 23. The Day of Atonement is a time of sin offering. It's a time of recognizing and bringing to the Lord an offering for the covering of our sins. It would have been on the Day of Atonement that not only was there to be oxen offered, but there was to be two goats. One would be slaughtered and offered. The other would have his the priest would lay its hands on its head and send it off as the scapegoat. That's on the Day of Atonement. Five days later, on the 15th day of the month, they are to begin recognizing for a week long a festival, what's called the Festival of Booths. They are to reenact they are to remember how God took them from Egypt and marched them through the land of Canaan, or to the land of Canaan, and as they were going, God provided for them for every step of the way. So the seventh month was a very important month, and Ezra, the historian that he is, made mention, or at least Put it in writing so that we would not forget how great our God is. That's this whole series. The book of Ezra oozes with the greatness of God. Oh, there may be times, dear people, where we find ourselves in captivity. We're taken there because of our own stubbornness. We are, find ourselves waking up in a foreign land because we have disregarded the commands of the Lord. But I'm here to tell you this morning, you don't have to stay there. You can go home. The greatness of God, as even Jeremiah wrote for the people, was only going to last 70 years, and you'd be able to go home. And here, this first exile back, 
reminds us so much of what God did for Israel as they came out of Egypt. In chapter 1, we are reminded that God stirred the heart of Cyrus as he hardened the heart of Pharaoh. In chapter 1, we are reminded that the people plundered the land of Babylon. Gifts were given to them by people just as they were as they came out of Egypt. In chapter 1, we are told that Cyrus released all of the temple instruments as Jeremiah said he would do. And as the children of Israel marched, numbered and marched through the land, to the land of Canaan. So we find the same thing in chapter 2 of Ezra. Now they arrive. And on the seventh month, the trumpets have blown. And did you catch what the text says? They left what they were doing. They came to Jerusalem as one man. As one man. Why? Why did they come to Jerusalem? Two things. First of all, while they came in, they initialized it. They built the altar of God. I, I challenge you to trace this altar. The interesting thing of it is, is it says it was set up on its basis. In other words, it was carefully rebuilt of where it was supposed to be. The question arises is where is it supposed to be? Well, if you go in the book of First Chronicles, you will find an interesting passage where David is in chapter 21 of First Chronicles. David does something that brings judgment from God. He takes a census of the people. Something that David was never supposed to do, he, he did, in fact. Chapter 21 of 1 Chronicles said, And Satan led it. And because of that, the prophet came to David, and he says, Choose one of three judgments from God. How would you like that assignment? One of three judgments? Well, what are they? The first judgment that God says you can choose is hundreds of thousands of your countrymen are going to get slaughtered. <laughs> and judgment number two. You can go and be held in captivity of your enemies for a period of time. Or you can choose to fall under my judgment of a plague that would afflict the land 
for a period of three days. Which one would you choose? Neither one of them's got a bright side, by the way. But David did say, I would rather fall in the hands of my God who is of mercy than to fall in the hands of my enemies. I I choose you, God. In that judgment, David is told to go to a Jebusite by the name of Ornan. And there you will find a threshing field, a threshing floor. It's there. I want you to build an altar so that I will refrain or restrain my hand of judgment. David goes there. And he finds this Jebusite. And the Jebusite Ornan says, you're the king. You can have it for free. Do with it whatever you want. In fact, I'll even provide for you the animals you need. I'll provide for you the wood that you need. You do it for free. But you know what David said? No. I'll pay the full price. Because he says, I will not offer to my God any offering that does not cost me. What do we offer to God? We offer him leftovers. Penance. And yet, Ezra chapter 3 brings our attention to what we should be doing. If you want to know how to be sustained through judgment storms, if you want to know how to be able to rise above the actions of this world, Ezra chapter 3 gives us the key, and it's about worship. Worshiping God. This altar that has been built was carefully placed by Solomon, David's son, on the exact location. The temple was built with the altar in the exact location of Ornan the Jebusite's threshing floor. For the purpose of remembering the hand of God. And so when these people came back, they carefully placed the altar where it would be an Ornans, the Jebusites, threshing floor. They rebuilt it. And they began to worship God. They did it by offering burnt offerings. Notice, if you will, the purpose. The purpose for the restoration. You'll notice the purpose in verse 3. Fear had come upon them. Fear of the people who were still in the land. 
fear of being able to rebuild, reestablish, to reignite, if you will, worship that for 70 years they were denied. And yet now they recognized that the proper way to be separated from fear is to worship God. What causes you great fear? This passage spoke to my heart. Because the next time I'm mowing my lawn, which is coming, by the way, if I see a snake on my lawn, I hate snakes. I'm like Indiana Jones. I, I can't stand them. They scare me to death. Next time I sing a snake, you know what I'm going to do? Praise to the Lord, the all. I'm going to worship God. What causes us fear? That's a light thing. But what causes us great fear? We can get caught up in the things of this world, but I'm here to tell you the actions of the world is, that's who they are. That's what they do. We dare not find our sustenance of peace from the halls of the White House. It won't happen. We dare not try to gain for ourselves a peaceful night's rest based upon our checkbook or our bank book. Those things fall away. Those things dissolve. But what doesn't dissolve is the greatness of our God. That even in the midst of when you are awakened at night by the phone ringing and on the other side of that conversation there's terrifying news but yet for some reason you have the peace of God that guards our hearts and minds to Christ Jesus. When you hear a siren go by, you don't shudder in fear because you realize that my God controls all things. When doctors say to a patient, that they're about to unplug everything that sustains her life, and yet she still smiles and says, my God is still in control. Worship. I think worship is sometimes best defined as that which living a life that exemplifies the truth of the Word of God. Living a life that exemplifies the truth of the Word of God. These Israelites began, it says, to exemplify the truth of the Word of God because there's a phrase that we've read that says, according to what Moses, the prophet of God, said to do.
They're following the word of God. And they begin to offer burnt offerings Without getting too, too detailed in this situation, I, I need to give to you, there are three categories in the Word of God. There are three categories of offerings and sacrifices to the Lord. The first category, and then I don't expect all of you to remember this, but the first is a propitiatory. In other words, that which for atonement, which is a sin offering or a guilt offering. The second category is that which is a dedicatory offering or consecration or giving of themselves. We find those in the burnt offerings, the cereal offerings, and the drink offering. Then there's the one that's a communal or for fellowship, which is a peace offering, a wave offering, a thanksgiving offering, a free will offering, and vows. The children of Israel here on this altar were giving dedicatory they are giving of themselves to God it's not a sin offering because there's no ark there's no temple there's no holy of holy place in order for the priest to take it in so these are all dedicatory offerings committing themselves back, if you will, saying to God, here I am, take me. It's the same truth that Jesus, even on the cross, said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And they're offering these burnt offerings, saying to God, We've got nothing but you. And if you've got nothing but God, let me let you in on a little secret. You got all you need. If that's all you have, that's all you need. But God is so gracious, he goes far beyond that, doesn't he? He provides for our needs day by day, moment by moment. He equips us. He strengthens us. He allows us the privilege to minister in his holy name. And these offerings, both in the morning and the evening, to the new moon, seasonal offerings, they are giving back to God. But they also begin the festival of of booths. They go back. They build their huts as described in the law of Moses to be built in a certain way for a certain purpose in order that 
the children of Israel would remember the greatness of God as he took them through the wilderness. In our present day form of worship, we have, I'm going to try to tie this together, I believe we have a festival of booths. But it's not in the fashion that we go out and and build a hut. It's the elements that we put on the table. And it's the instance of baptism. Because both of those point to the greatness of our God. Here are the elements that speak of God's provision for our life. There is a provision for an outward testimony of saying, I am going to associate myself with the greatness of Jesus Christ through his death, burial, and resurrection. Why? Because in that, not in that baptism, but in the finished work of Christ by grace through faith, I have eternal life. And every time that we engage ourselves at the table and in the water, we are literally identifying ourselves with the very presence, if you will, of the upper room when Jesus took that which was normal and made it brand new. He said, this is my body. This is my blood. When we go into baptism... What shook me this week in the identification of baptism is this. I'm identified with the Ethiopian eunuch who said, what is preventing me from being baptized, from being identified with God? An individual coming out of a Christless nation gets saved, gets baptized, and then goes back to that nation and ministers in a high court. I'm identified with what Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 12. We're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. That's our booth. That's our festival. And it causes us to worship God. And for maybe just for a moment of time, we are released from the fear of the world. Because our God is great. Let me give you the the product of this restoration. First of all, it says that they continually offered offerings to the Lord. They continually offered offerings. And lastly, they gave willingly for the building of the temple. The temple will not start to be built for at least another two years. In Ezra chapter 3 and verse 8, 
it lays out for us the beginning of the rebuilding of the foundation of the temple. So maybe for two years, they kept coming to Jerusalem on the seventh month, on the first and the fifteenth day, to remember the greatness of our God and to conquer fear of the people. I close with the same way I opened. Who do you run to? What do you listen to? Where do you go when the circumstances of life cause you great fear? I'm here to tell you, as Ezra has reminded us, the place we should go is worship. Living a life that exemplifies the truth of the Scripture. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the power of these this small book. I thank you that it draws our attention to how great you are. This coming week, and some of us will be thrown into circumstances of life that just don't seem to be able to find an answer to. May we refuse to stare at the circumstance, but may we gaze at the glory of our God. And may you somehow, some way, as you work through those circumstances, not only would we be encouraged, not only would we be peaceful, but we'll have a peace that passes all understandings that will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Lord, may we continually determine to focus and to worship you and be careful to praise you in the matchless name of Christ. Amen.